Welcome to Regulate Tech, where we're talking about some of the hot issues uh, affecting technology policy, issues that um, have long been of interest to nerdy tech policy people like my myself and my uh, co-presenter, Nicholas, um, but now seem to be actually attracting attention from a much wider audience. Tech, tech policy has moved mainstream. Uh, and in that spirit, we thought it might be helpful to share some of our experience, some of our thoughts around these issues with a wider audience through this podcast format. Yes, and we, we also have succumbed now to that great danger that seems to succumb to, to older men in a pandemic, which is that we started a podcast, which I, I think is... A, it's is too a, much it's time a, at home. It's too much time at home. Hopefully it will yeah. be a, a useful one. And, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that uh, we will find interesting things to disagree about. Exactly, exactly. So for the first um, iteration of this, as we're uh, tinkering with everything and, and figuring out what, what to do, we thought we would, would tackle a painfully relevant and timely subject, which is the responsibility of platforms, something that has been debated widely and broadly. But rather than just ask the, the very small question of, did Twitter do the right thing? Um, why don't we just talk a little bit about what is what's the dynamic of this question of the platform responsibility question? What do you think are the the, the competing forces that are at play here? So, so I think the the big challenge is that when everything that sort of plays out in society plays out on the internet platforms, and when that happens, there's a huge public demand for something to be done. Uh, to, to do nothing is not acceptable. Uh, and there is, um, you know, I've worked on both sides of the fence. I've worked on the tech policy side and I've worked on the legislative side. And there's just a real gap in the speed at which these two worlds work. So tech policy is developing in real time. Something does something awful. You, you must make a decision right now. Do you close their account? Do you keep their account open? What do you do? And legislative cycles take years and years. And so we have this sort of demand for something to be done now and a legislative system, for very good reason, because you want to be really careful when you're making new laws, that will take years to address that issue. Um, and in the meantime, the platforms have to act. And it's almost whatever they do, that they're probably going to upset some people, uh, you know, who they'll either go too far or they won't go far enough. And certainly, they will offend everyone who follows the principle that government should make important decisions, not private companies. But let's dig into that a bit, because I think one of the core tensions in this debate seems to be um, between those who say that uh, platforms should only remove that which is blatantly illegal. That's sort of the only thing, almost a must carry principle that they sort of want to put forward. And then there are those who, who argue that, well, you know, platforms have a real moral responsibility and they're moral actors and they need to do much, much more than just what's legally required. But those two are clearly not compatible. And even within the European Union, that tension exists. If you look at the recent legislation that Poland seems to have proposed, it says that you can't remove anything if it's not illegal. And then you look at the Digital Services Act, that tension, how, how do you think that will play out in the coming, coming months and years? So, so I think um, it's really helpful with these things to think about some real world analogies. And I think a really critical question here is whether a, a platform, and platform is sort of sometimes an unhelpful word because it implies, it, in a sense, it implies this sort of passivity, but really it's an online community that somebody has built an infrastructure to, to support an online community. And the question is, is it a public square? I mean, literally a public square. Let's think of that as a physical space that I can go into where, you know, only normally in a public square, only the police would enforce the law and the only rules are the criminal law if it's if it's legal to do i can do it if it's illegal i can't do it and actually that's quite a broad range of issues if i ran uh, naked through the middle of leicester square in london it, it kind of is that it's sort of on the edge of legal or illegal but certainly people might ask the police to intervene and they probably would um so is it that or is it another analogy which i like is is it like a football stadium where in a football stadium it's a community of fans it's public Anyone with a ticket can walk into the football stadium, but that stadium is policed by largely by the stewards and they have a code of conduct and you, you can't just do what the hell you like in a football stadium whilst watching a match. There'll be all sorts of things that you could do that would get you ejected from the ground that are short of the criminal law. 
sometimes you will breach the criminal law and sometimes they'll call the police in but most of the discipline if you like uh, and the rules in a in a space like a football stadium which is a public space but is privately managed are in the hands of the football club and i think platforms see themselves much more in that model it, it's a space where the public can come into but yes they do have a responsibility for keeping that space orderly um and again extend the analogy if, if a football stadium said look my fans came in they were shouting racist abuse <laughs> they were doing you know running riot getting drunk oh, not my problem I'm just going to call the police I think most people would say that's outrageous you know the football stadium the club has to get control of what's going on inside its own ground well that's um, a real debate though right platforms. I mean it's it's a real debate because if you look at football hooligans for example the enormous hooligan <laughs> problem that, that soccer has or football has I think one of the things that has been argued is why on earth should we spend public resources and ask police to come here when this should be the responsibility of the football clubs. So there yeah. seems to be a real tension there, don't you think? Well, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the point. So, so you, you end up, I mean, this is the UK regime. We have a, a dual regime. So um, the, the police can take someone to court and they can get what they call a football banning order. And so there could be a court ordered thing that says you can't go in the stadium. But most of the time, the, the discipline is being done by the club. So it's both. It's it's not either or, it's both and. And I think sometimes in a lot of these debates, we end up thinking it's an either or debate when it's a both and debate. So it is both that there needs to be criminal sanctions and, and actually governments sometimes do impose orders banning people from social media, uh, typically in the context of sex offences or uh, terrorism offences. So there may be some banning orders like you would have for a football hooligan that come from the state. But at the same time, a lot of the low level hooliganism, if you like, is going to be dealt with by the club. And you're right, the public would say the club must deal with that. You shouldn't just go running off to the state the whole time for some kind of expensive policing and judicial process for, for what is a low level offence that, that the club should and can manage by, for example, ejecting that individual from their grounds, checking checking that they don't come back in, all of that kind of normal stuff, which is, again, very comparable to what, what social media platforms are doing. They're saying, you know, low-level hooligans in, in the social media context, we're going to chuck you out, we're going to eject you from the ground, and we're not going to let you back in. But if it's something serious, if it was terrorism or sex offences at the serious level, the platform would go to the police uh, in, in the relevant country and say, hey, you need to have a look at this and get involved with this person. Yeah. So let's, one of the criticisms uh, of platforms is, is slightly different because it, it, I mean, in the metaphors or the analogies that we're looking at here, the platform is a fairly neutral arena. If you're a public square, um, you're a public square, you're open to all kinds of, of publicly allowed things. If you're a football arena, uh, your only purpose is to arrange football matches. Hmm. But uh, some of the criticism that has come to the surface in the last couple of days has essentially been that the platforms have a business model that actually uh, favor hooligans, to take your football stadium yeah. analogy. They have a business model that make people into hooligans even. And so platforms are producing hooligans and can't be compared to a neutral stadium. What do you think about that line of criticism? I mean, you know, fr frankly, I think there's a, there's a sort of moral panic angle to that. I mean, the, the reality is, works inside the platforms the platforms yes they're there to give people what they want i mean that's the that's the defining principle i think some people extend that and go well if people want bad stuff it must be because the platforms are pushing them to the bad stuff uh, because that in some ways is a more palatable <laughs> explanation than look a significant proportion of your fellow citizens just like this bad stuff so you, you often see you know figures trotted out saying yeah, uh, the top most visited pages on Facebook are from Donald Trump and right-wing news outlets. Well, that's because Facebook users are choosing to go there. It, it isn't. Again, people, it's a, it's a myth. They say, well, Facebook must be pushing them down people's throats. That's just not how it works. If, if Facebook users decide to follow Donald Trump, if they decide to share his posts, if that's the stuff that's most interesting to them, it'll rise to the top of the ranks. And if they choose to follow the UK Guardian newspaper or some other stuff, that'll rise to the top of the rank. So, so I think it, in a sense, I think it's much more accurate to say it's reflective than that it is, you know, um, driving people towards particular content. In the in general, 
at the margins, there are some features of platforms that may have their effects. So I don't want to like dismiss it altogether, but I just think it's a very small part of the equation. Um, let's say the, the core principle is not, we want you to have bad and sensational content. The core principle is, we want to give you the stuff that we think you're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, we want to match that. And if you're interested in sensational stuff, you'll get sensational stuff. But if you're interested in mainstream stuff or left-wing stuff or right-wing stuff or Victoriana or uh, 1970s pop groups, like that's what you're going to get given. It's not, it's not a, you know, everyone is going to be driven towards sensational as some kind of inherent dynamic. But this, I think this is worth just pausing on briefly, because this is one of the things that I don't see a lot of in the debate. And I think this is a core disagreement. And you can end up on both sides of this disagreement, frankly. It's a, it's one, it's a reasonable disagreement, if you will. And I think that the disagreement here is about not just the platform's responsibility, but the individual citizen's responsibility. Yeah. And, and I think there, there is, if you, if you really dig into this, it's always been my sense that there is a, at the heart of this, there is a real divided view of human nature. I mean, on one hand, you have those people who say that we are, um, we, we suffer from what the Greeks called akrasia, a weakness of will. And, and even though it's not to our own, in our own best interest, we are going to be radicalized if the platform just um, gives us the nudges to go down the radicalization path. And that's going to happen because that's the nature of, uh, of human beings. That's how we work. And then on the other hand, there are those that say, well, no, that's not the case. We are not gullible and we are not suggestible to the degree that we're actually just going to do what a series of algorithms uh, suggest that we do. We have a responsibility for our own actions. And as you point out, there are marginal phenomena that might be sort of in between, but why do you, why is that such an uncomfortable discussion to have? And why is, it, why is that not surfacing as much, do you think? I mean, um, it, I think that's exactly the right uh, way to think of it. it. It is a lot of people's reactions to platforms, particularly social media, depend on their core beliefs about human nature. Um, and so that the and, and, you know, personally, I think the power of platforms is overstated because a lot of people uh, don't feel comfortable, I say, with the diversity of, of human nature. Uh, in a sense, I think the platforms reflect what's going on across the whole of society. And some people feel well, either they, they don't want to believe the reflection um, or they look at the reflection. And they say, well, what you need to do is be a distorting mirror. So you need to ch change what, what's happening here. And, and that would be, I mean, I often call it like the BBC philosophy. So, so uh, we, we've had you know, long arguments over TV. A lot of stuff in tech policy is actually not entirely new. So we have had exactly this argument over television. Uh, with the in the UK, the sort of baseline belief from those, probably from my political persuasion, sort of more on the left, is that um, commercial TV stations like those offered by Sky are appealing to people's worst instincts. This is the debate in the as, as satellite TV was launched, but they're going to just show everybody trash. Whereas, uh, and everybody wants, there's an assumption that everyone wants to watch trash, but luckily, the BBC doesn't give people trash and the BBC's job is not to give people what they want but to give people what they ought to have and so I think a lot of the debate we're having now is whether social media platforms should give people what they want or if you assume that what they want is going to be uh, something you don't like should they actually try and shape the debate so it goes back into something that's more reasonable uh, in, in other words move people off away from their sort of base instincts. And actually some of the recent comments by Jack Dorsey at Twitter, I think actually along those lines, it's, all, it's saying, you know, we've, we've allowed people to, to uh, get into this kind of political frenzy. We didn't cause them to get into political frenzy, but maybe we could damp down that political frenzy by actions that we take. So in other words, it's not uh, um, that intervening makes things more radical. It's that radical is the base state and we need an intervention to make it less radical. Uh, and, and this asks a fundamental question, I think, about the nature of platforms as institutions, as social institutions in our society. Because what you're sort of suggesting here is that um, the platforms have 
Well, for the sake of argument, let's say that platforms actually have a public service um, role to play on top of all of the other things that they do. There's a public service role to play here. And, and what public service has tried to do, the BBC and the Nordic public, public service companies, for example, has tried to do is just to create this public square uh, under a, a hard to fulfill objectivity criterion where they're supposed to be objective about everything that they say. And so do you think public service is that paradigm is a good way to analyze how platforms should think about reform? Again, I think it's really interesting to look at the television debate. Um, uh, and and it's, it's also fascinating that we're still trying to figure out uh, how the television market should work. And that's been around since the 1950s. So it's sort of 70 years later. So it kind of tells us we may take a little longer to figure out the, the internet space. Um, but that really has sort of settled, as you say, into this model, certainly in Europe, where you have a public service broadcaster definition. And, and that's not exclusive. Not everybody has to be a public service broadcaster. You then have or commercial broadcasters and commercial broadcasters have a there are different expectations of them that's a sort of looser framework if we can describe it that way and for the individual citizen or the consumer they can turn on a tv or satellite service and they can have this very broad range of channels some of which well, some of which are entirely full of pornography and that's what you know you're going to get if you go there some of which are what people may feel a sort of trash tv some of which are specialist tv and some of which are these generalist public service broadcasters working within a particular set of rules. And actually when I, I hear what a lot of people uh, say about online platforms like Facebook and Twitter, I think particularly these are critics from the left, having broadly described it that way, they're basically saying, we want a regulatory framework that looks like the framework within which a public broadcaster like SVT or BBC or, TF1 or you know all of these sort of uh, European regulated public broadcasters sit and that's where we think they need to be uh, and and that's viable uh, governments could decide that you know platforms of a certain size have to fall within a, a sort of TV like or public service broadcaster like set of obligations but, but is it though because I, I'd like to 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 challenge that just for the um, for, for our argument what you describe are purely national regimes where you have individual nations with their own television and that's sort of the size that public service manages to carry. There's no European public service, except for the Eurovision Song Contest, fine, which might be might be the sort of the unifying public service sphere that you can build. But I but, think that's but, TikTok. TikTok <laughs> is sort of the, encapsulates that spirit. Probably. <laughs> Perhaps it does. And so my question is: it, Does this necessarily then mean that that you'll see uh, the platforms shard into to much more national? instances than then they are today this dream we had at the beginning of the internet of a global village of a global public sphere and a global public conversation is there a way to salvage that or are we inevitably saying that the public sphere can't be any size it, it actually needs to mirror the polity that it serves so it needs yeah. to be national or perhaps even local in some cases I mean, I think you've put your finger on, on one of the real challenges. Uh, so, so you're exactly right. The public service broadcaster license is granted by a national government, enforced by a national regulator, and will have national standards. And they will vary from country to country. So the, I mean, the, the famous uh, Janet Jackson nipple slip in the US, if people are old like me, I remember there's a big, big row when the FCC cracked down on... on uh, broadcasters for allowing you know any element of nudity and then you'll come over to Europe and there's obviously quite different standards about what's acceptable in terms of nudity on a public service broadcaster if you if you look at uh, channels over here so it is national it's very different um, and there is no sort of global enforcement agency and so there is a uh, if you were to take the the model and extend it out you would say we will have some body of the United Nations will become the global public service broadcasting regulator and impose this global set of standards that all the nations of the world have got together to find. Of course, that is pretty nightmarish. I mean, I don't think uh, uh, it's A, realistic and B, desirable. So I don't think we're necessarily going to go there. So I, I do think there's an element and, and, and you know, platforms have got more and more sophisticated. I, th I think there are some baseline things that, that uh, 
you know, mean that, that every country can can kind of get on board with. I think you could have a platform that has, you know, 80, 90 percent consistent rules globally, but there may be quite an important 10 percent where they have to make some tweaks. And, and they can do that now. Increasingly, the technology will allow them to do that. And I think as platforms become more central to uh, public discussions, public culture, public uh, interest in a particular country, I think it's just inevitable, as a politician, I'd say this, that, that if there are disconnects between what the platform is permitting and, and what the government feels is harmful, that they're going to focus on those and they're going to ask for a regime that either the platform has to implement globally or they're going to have to create a local variation. But I say, I don't think we should overstate it. Most conversations, most of the time that take place between most people actually are going to be fine. It's stuff at the margins. It's, you know, precise definitions of nudity, uh, self-harm, you know, what constitutes encouragement to suicide. Very, very, it's very um, uh, sort of sensitive subject and different countries would have different feelings about that. What constitutes incitement to violence? Uh, what about people with guns and knives? We have different sort of tolerance thresholds for things like that. They're all important. But again, we shouldn't mistake that for the bulk of the conversation that takes place online, which is actually going to be acceptable everywhere. I, so that's sort of defining it negatively though say what do what where cannot where, where are we unable to agree on the definitions of the kind of content that we believe should be allowable on these platforms but you could also ask um you could ask the positive reverse of that which is okay but how large a public sphere can we actually entertain as human beings going back to our own nature our own character can we can we have a global conversation can we even have a national conversation seems to be a reasonable question in, in most countries uh, or, or should we think about the public sphere as we try to rebuild it and as we try to make the platforms uh, open to, amenable to deliberation as something that needs to be built in, in much smaller uh, units and perhaps combined in some new way? I mean, one of the challenges, I would, I would posit this, one of the challenges um, with the way technology has changed speech in, in the last 20 or 30 years is that that the right to free speech might be said to have two different strong functions. The first is discovery. You try to discover as many new ideas, opinions as possible. You try to really draw on the fount of human creativity to, to understand the world. And discovery is something that's really important. It's the marketplace of ideas, a very American conception of free expression, if we simplify. And then the other is that, well, you know, it's, it's in the public sphere that we debate, that we come to conclusions. This is a really important function of free speech, and that's deliberation. Now, if you, if you then agree that discovery and deliberation are two core functions for, for free expression, you have to also look at how technology has changed both of those functions. And it seems obvious that discovery has exploded. You can discover more ideas than you ever could before, but almost at the cost of deliberation. It's harder and harder to build deliberation on platforms today. Um, and it, 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 just saying that here are the things we do not agree on seems not to answer the question of how we positively can make platforms the home for, if that's what they can be, the home for, for deliberation. I, I mean, I, I actually think that's a really profound question. This gap, you're absolutely right. I think platforms are ideally suited to discovery. The, the, the fact that they operate at scale, the fact that they, they just have so much content means they're great for discovery. And I think they're optimized for that. I'm not sure they can ever fill the, delib the deliberation gap. Deliberation is an intimate, personal exercise that takes place directly between people. I mean, interestingly, I think the closest you may get are messenger services, where people form small groups, private groups. But deliberation is a small, private, as I say, sort of intimate type activity. Um, and, and it's ever been thus. I mean, it's the same in, a, again, or just to go back when we have this challenge around general election campaigns where um, there have been experiments in the past where you would you know everyone's involved in a general election campaign they get broadcast information at scale plenty of discovery the parties tell you every day what they're thinking um, but occasionally they've taken people aside and they formed a, a citizens jury type model and, and got them into a room or, and and got them to actually talk and discuss an issue and, and focus on it 
and they'll often come to quite different conclusions if you stick them in a room and, and make them discuss an issue for three or four days or discuss the different party platforms for three or four days. So do you think platforms will ever be able to play that deliberative function and not just a discovery function? I mean, I think that's a really interesting open question. We may be asking them to do something that they're not designed to do. Um, and you know, in, in technology, the, the worst thing you can do is to is to sort of build a tool and, and uh, on the assumption people will use it one way and then keep insisting that they they do that when it's actually not the right tool for the job. And so I think it may be that we need to read to think about deliberation say more broadly it's not it's not limited to what takes place on platforms it's a broader societal question actually i think scandinavian countries in, have often done the most interesting experiments where uh, you know you've tried to bring together consensus conferences and all sorts of mechanisms that you can do to do this so i think it's we need to look at that broader literature and thinking and experimentation around deliberation as a whole society problem and, and only when we've sort of figured out what kind of mechanisms work, should we say, well, are platforms the right tools to meet these requirements? What we shouldn't try and do is, is sort of fit, you know, uh, force people to deliberate on platforms when those platforms are just not not the right tool for the job. But, but they, I think there has been some of that. And, and they sort of think that they are deliberating because it's the entire debate is framed in this free speech, free expression uh, paradigm. You know, what should we do about free speech? What should we do about free expression? Which which easily then boils down to individual pieces of content. Should it stay up or should it go down, right? So yeah. we have that discussion. Whereas if you look back at the history of free expression and, and you look at how thoughtful people have written about this and you go to even the most ardent defenders like John Stuart Mill, if you read the chapter in On Liberty where he discusses this, he discusses freedom of the press. For him, it's obvious that free expression is institutionally contextualized. It's situated in the framework of rules and institutions. And that's how you think about free expression. Free expression completely divorced from any kind of institution is hard to imagine what it even is. Uh, the closest example to this, when I've looked into this before a conversation that I found was a, a beautiful passage from, from French philosopher Simone Weil, um, mm. who writes in, in The Need for Roots, this, this constitutional text almost as she wrote for France after the Second World War to get back to a, a sort of a moral rehabilitation for a country that she felt really needed to revisit its basic assumptions about how we live together, how we form a polity. And in that she says, you know, there should be a space for absolute free expression where you can say anything, you can test any idea and you can make sure that, you know, all of the ideas that people have, however objectionable are actually brought to the fore. But, she says, if you're trying to affect somebody's opinion, if you mean what you say, you should be held accountable. So she yeah. then imagines that you would have these two spheres, one in which you could try everything, and one in which, which you sort of would be held accountable for trying to affect people's opinion. And, and she says, <laughs> which is understatement of the century, this might be hard to do um, in a proper legal fashion. <laughs> yes. And I think what we've learned is that you can't separate these two spheres. You can't talk about free expression as an absolute thing without any institutions whatsoever. And what do you think? I mean, what are the institutions we need here in order to build something up? You reference consensus conferences, for example, and, and other things. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, um, I'm really interested in mechanisms that allow people to understand as much as they want to understand, if I can put it that way. So, so you know, again, we all have limited bandwidth for, for understanding information about something and one of the one of the criticisms you get of the platforms is well you know we don't understand their policies we don't understand why they're making their decisions actually that information is kind of out there the reality is most of the time we don't want to read it uh, we don't we don't take the time to, to to go and look at what they're doing um unless something happens that affects us and then then our first assumption is but but you know there's no information the information is there but it's not it, that we don't create sort of helpful journeys for people to go through that. So if you sort of assume that most people most of the time don't want to go into the weeds of a particular issue, they just want the headlines, you have the headlines presented to them. But then you have a path that says, look, you know, find out more. Uh, okay, go to the next level, go to the next level, go to the next level, all that information should be there. And then thinking about ways in which uh, at the right time, you can take people to the next level. 
this is this is the sort of heart of, of what you need to do in deliberation is sort of say okay that's the headline okay now how uh, you know, if you want to really understand you, your headline is you think an election was fraudulent uh, for example like the next level is say okay we now need to talk about how elections work uh, you know if you think there was a problem with uh, the vote counting and supervision of the vote counting you can't really opine on that until you understand how uh, supervision of vote counting works in a general sense so how do we get you that understanding how do we take you on that journey um, through these different layers of information that you need in order to be able to form a, a, a meaningful view on something that that is the trick and i'm not sure well so i think we we have plenty of evidence to suggest that a simple post on a social media site generally doesn't take people effectively on that journey some posts do actually and, and you see some commentators are very good uh covid would be another example somebody posts you know the classic sort of covid is no worse than the common cold or whatever it is they're thinking that day and you will see some people respond and they say now let me explain to you how common colds work let's explain to you how covid works da, 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 and they'll take you on that journey um but i think there are two components you need there one is you know really good uh, content that takes you on the journey and the second is a way to bring people in uh, and and take them on the journey with you get them get them sort of started down that journey and at the moment I think both of those are lacking uh, yeah. we don't necessarily have the good content because it's much easier just to go uh, covidiot and if you have that phrase <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you said it's like the common cold it's not you're an idiot full stop like <laughs> we haven't gone anywhere there's no journey um so i think we're sort of missing we're missing the 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 meaningful responses and then really interesting question actually back to your some of your philosophers is is sort of you know what what if people don't want to go on those journeys <laughs> yeah uh, what if they would much rather just shout common cold covidiot at each other all day uh like is it then the responsibility of the platform either to shut down because that's a terrible debate or you know the platform has to try harder it's got to force people on those journeys and you see a little bit of that actually with some of the fact-checking stuff you know if you post covid is like the common cold we're going to stick something on there a label on there and we're going to um before you can read this you're going to have to read a thing that tells you the truth about covid and common colds like, yeah, that would be the public service broadcaster model uh we're going to we're going to sort of force some truthful content down your throat uh is is the way they've always operated and, and it's sort of a, a hybrid model of, of the open commercial model and the public service model and it's, it's i guess it's an open question if if that path is worth pursuing further if you can go um further down that path because it's also i think one of the things that um that, that you realize is that there's an intimacy to to platforms where you feel you're interacting with others, but it also has the distinct qualities of a broadcast platform. You could imagine a world in which you, you had a platform that said, you're fine to listen to how many people you want, but you can only speak to a tenth of the people you listen to. So yep. you're only allowed to have, uh, it's often the reverse if you look at followers on Twitter, for example, that people have, they're following like four people and then they have an audience of 150. What if you reverse that and you imposed an asymmetry and said that, well, you know what, you can only speak to small groups because that's how we think about this medium, but you can listen to everyone. And um, do you think things like that are worth trying or is that just the mind going down the path of the technical fix and hoping that there is a... Yeah, I think there is a risk that I think I think we need to understand a lot more, and there is some good research going on. But again, we're in the early days of of you know the research that helps us to understand how people use the platforms beyond the you know data is the plural of anecdote kind of situation we're in now. We we all have our own experience of the platform, but I have mine. Uh, and I will often cite that, and I I have views on how I think people use platforms, but. But actually, we do need you know, decent data collection and research that tells us how people are using platforms. And then critically, how that correlates with behaviors. And where they have done that research, some of it actually challenges some of the popular myths. So there's the, the idea, the filter bubble, which actually was originally conceived as a concept related to search was sort of rolled over onto social media. People said, aha, you know, most of my friends share my political views, therefore social media is a filter bubble. And actually when you sort of dig into it and look at the research, you find that people are exposed to more varied 
source of information on social media than they are in the real world because they all have slightly more distant people as well in their social circle and you know in in the real world i i don't meet anybody who tells me that donald trump is great but there are some people in my social media feed who do that say that uh not necessarily the closest people but they're there and i see it so so we need that kind of research but am i typical i, I suspect not i suspect i have a much higher quota of political and news content than most people in my feed so the research that says that looks at what people are actually doing and then that how that correlates with all sorts of behaviors uh, about their political views uh, whether or not they become radicalized the, the sort of actions that they take that's the research we need and there are people now doing that but again very very early days um, and we need a lot more of it Let's add a few uh, show notes uh, where we we come with a few uh, literature recommendations. I, for example, I'm I'm really um, fond of Not Born Yesterday by Hugo Mercier that goes over a lot of the cognitive science research that suggests that that we're not as gullible as some people would assume. I think that there is an yeah. interesting argument being made by Mercier and other cognitive scientists that if we were, uh, we would have been selected against. Because if you're really gullible, it's hard to, to survive in an evolutionary world. And there's several really interesting um, articles that he references there. And, and the research that you mentioned that show that people actually have a more diverse news consumption, social media is, is also something that's worthwhile looking at. Although still admitting it's an open question and there's more research needed, I yeah. think it's, it's good just to, to have a sense of that. Now, let's, let's turn to um, another question. Um, so we're at what a lot of people describe as a, a pivotal moment in the history of the internet. And it revolves around an American president. Do you think that's a coincidence? Would we have had the same if we had a discussion outside of the US? So, so I mean, you and I have both worked for American companies, but as Europeans and, and uh, you know, both with HQ and from a distance, I just think there is a, a sort of inherent bias towards events that happen in the country where a company is situated. And it's not a particularly American thing. It, uh, it's just that the decision makers are sitting within a media and news environment themselves. And that's what they're going to respond to uh, most strongly. So they turn on the television in the morning or pick up the newspaper and they see a story about their president abusing the platform. That's just orders of magnitude more impactful than a footnote on page seven about the president of some far off country doing something on their platform. And we can say that's like, that's wrong. You should be, you know, just as worried about the president of the far off country, but that's just the reality that we work within. And so it's a, it's a classic case. Again, in tech companies, we do unconscious bias training. Uh, for, for reasons of recruitment to make sure mm. that we understand if we're biased towards particular for or against particular categories of people. In a sense, when it comes to decision making by platforms, there is an unconscious bias, a very strong unconscious bias in favour of, uh, I would say, events that feature in the news media that the executives are paying most attention to, let's put it that way. It connects back to what we spoke about earlier, doesn't it? This notion that the public sphere can only be as large as the polity it's trying to, to serve. And, and what you see here is essentially people reacting to events in their own public sphere. They're reacting to events that are happening um, within their own polity. And those reactions are going to be stronger than reactions to what happens in other people's polities. And maybe there's something to recognizing the fact that, that this sort of global network itself has not yet at least managed to sustain a global polity. Um, that's, that's right. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. There are different ways to bring that I mean, Again, I'm sure you have that experience that when you when you bring executives into, into a different environment, so I would have executives come visit Europe, and for three or four days they would be consuming European news media, meeting European politicians who are feeding back their concerns, and they would go, oh my God, like, there's all these issues <laughs> yes. I, I just wasn't aware of. And then when I get back to headquarters, they're going to be top of my list. And they are top of the list for two or three weeks. <laughs> and then, and again, I don't mean this offensively. This is natural. It's the same for me. When, you know, if I go to America, like all of the American stuff becomes much more uh, commanding of my attention than, than it would be otherwise. So 
this is just a sort of natural uh, dynamic in a sense. So, but but that that um, you know, getting your executives out is actually one mechanism to try and redress this. So it doesn't it doesn't create the global polity, but if executives are sort of regularly or decision makers, let me put it that way. It's not executives. That's so like yeah, yeah, exactly. Decision hierarchical. But if decision makers are are getting into other environments, that will change the way they make decisions. I think that's right. And I think that there is there is a lot of value in also thinking about the fact that uh, if you want to build deliberation, you actually have to respect the fact that a public sphere can't be any size. It just, you need to figure out how people organize their own deliberations uh, politically yeah. and, and how to support that in different ways, which, which, is, which is hard. Now, let's get to some, sorry, yes. I was going to say just one thing. I, I think it's, it's again like with the unconscious bias training, which, which is uh, I think is relevant here. Once you identify a weakness, you need to work at it. <laughs> so that's the other trick. So if you are running a global platform from the United States, for example, and you become aware uh, that you have these unconscious biases, and and that in particular you are insufficiently focused on other parts of the world that need your attention as the decision maker, then you can make yourself do that. And, and I mean, very practically, reading the media from that place, spending time talking to people in that place, going to that place. But I think it starts with a recognition that you are, that you have the bias. Uh, and once you've recognized that, then it's a real commitment to changing the way in which you consume information in order to, to make up for that. And that is hard. It's asking a lot of people. It's, it's a huge, and again, I don't mean this lightly at all. It's asking a huge amount of people. The other fix is that you make sure that the group of decision makers is dispersed yes. and more representative of politics. So those are the two. So you either you either continue with your headquarters bias, which is there and is very powerful, or you get the people in headquarters, decision makers to change the way in which they consume i'd say particularly news media actually it's not again not to blame them but that just is the way in which we we understand what's important in the world so you read a little bit less new york times a little bit more mumbai times you, you kind of change the way in which you you consume news media or the third one i say is you you distribute your decision makers yeah. uh, those are those are really the ways you can try and tackle very much so so uh, in conclusion, uh, let's let's make a few predictions. I'm going to ask you things and then you can predict if they're going to happen or not. Do you think the CDA 230 survives 2021 in the US? I don't think it survives in its current form. I think we'll end up, actually, ironically, we'll end up with something much closer to the European model. And, and the crucial difference between 230 and the European liability exemption which is in something called the e-commerce directive is that the 230 exemption is a complete exemption so even once you've told a platform if the platform gets told this content is terrible and illegal under section 230 if the platform still does nothing it's fine can't be prosecuted under the european equivalent you're only fine until you're put on notice so as long as you don't know about the bad thing, you're fine. But as soon as someone's told you that here's some illegal content, you then have to act. That's uh, very different, very, very uh, um, impactful for the platforms. It still gives them a protection, but the protection expires once they have actual knowledge of the bad content. I think the US is going to move much closer to the European model, which says, yes, you still have your exemption, but only until you have a notice and have the detail knows all that is really important but if you you know some kind of notice at that point you can't just ignore it you must either dispute that the content is illegal or remove it do you think parlor will be back online when in the next two months i think it'll it's it's a bit like the chans i think it'll appear in some form but it's it's actually it could be a really interesting case study that one of the I think one of the reasons that platforms like Facebook and Twitter have been so successful is that they get the base technology right. In, in other words, it is just super easy for you as a consumer to use them. They just work and they work quickly. And people are very impatient on the phone with stuff that is hard to operate and slow. And so I think Parler will be back online. I think the question is, can they be back online in such a way 
that people don't get so frustrated using it that they, however much they say, oh, I'm, I'm a champion of free speech, I want to use Parler, they just don't because it's just too painful and slow and they give up and lose interest. And so I think the biggest blow to Parler is, is losing the Amazon Web Services infrastructure because that's the stuff that allows you to run everything globally uh, at lightning speed. Now, question, can somebody else give them an infrastructure that's as good as that or close enough uh, to being as good as that? I think Jack Dorsey will um, revise his decision to permanently suspend President Trump's uh, account and allow him back on Twitter before yeah, the I, end of year, before the end of year, sorry. I, I think it's unlikely. Um, uh, again, I would, th this is going to sound, this may sound odd, but uh, because it sort of, it, it suggests that platforms should be even more dictating the public sphere, but, but I actually think it, for fairness's sake, if President Trump were to say, I did lose the election fair and square, Joe Biden is the legitimate president, uh, it was a free and fair election, I think at that point he should be allowed back on. In other words, that should be the condition for him being back on platforms that he acknowledges. Now that sounds, that sounds like, you know, it's, a, it's a, a platform dictating to a politician what their view should be, but I actually think that's the heart of the problem. Um, you know, as long as he is saying, that election was not free and fair, and Joe Biden is illegitimate, in the climate of violence that there is in the United States, I don't think it's safe for him to be on, on the platforms. I think they're making the right decision. This is unsafe. Again, we talk about the liability question, you know, uh, people are saying it's terrible that Facebook and Twitter made this decision on the one hand. On the other hand, they're saying, and Facebook and Twitter have liability, joint liability for the death of people in the riots. Now, you know, if you if you think they're liable, then uh, they've got to get rid of the source of legal risk, and the source of legal risk is President Trump. So he, he they're sort of left with no option in 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 that environment. Um, but as I say, I think if Trump were to reform himself, uh, then then actually I think that's quite a that would be the happiest outcome. He says, fine, you know. I lost fair and square. I'd like a platform. And, and when people come on the platform and say the election was stolen, I'm going to say, no, it wasn't. It was, you know, I mean, it may sound like a fantasy, but that's sort of what you want. And it's happened in worse scenarios. Um, you know, we have former terrorists. We used to have to deal with this. What, what happens when, you know, a, a violent terrorist has entered into a peace process and is now saying, please put down your arms? And I actually that, think that person should be given a platform. <laughs> on that happy note, comparing President Trump <laughs> with a former terrorist, um, yeah. uh, uh, which seems... But I, I get your point. I mean, uh, the comparison of understanding, I, I, I get, get what you're trying to say. So yeah. I think we... Um, uh, thank you for that. This has been an interesting conversation. Yeah. And the first, uh, first of many, I hope. And we'll get back on with Regulate Tech uh, in a little bit. You have listened to the first episode of Regulate Tech. You can find out more about the podcast at regulate.tech. That's R-E-G-U-L-A-T-E dot T-E-C-H with Richard Allen. If you have any questions, if you have any ideas, suggestions, proposals, criticism, please bring it on and send it to us at the address you can find at that page. Take care and we hope to see you soon again.